He came, he lived, he died, and he is raised from the dead. And even now, he intercedes on your behalf. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 22. As we're looking through these psalms, uh, one by one, uh, Bruce, I'm sure, I haven't had an opportunity to listen yet, but he covered Psalm 21, and now I'm in Psalm 22, and I want to continue on with a sermon entitled, Suffering That Bought Our Victory and Empowered Our Mission. Suffering That Bought Our Victory and Empowered Our Mission. We're entering into a group of psalms. These three psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24. Three of the most beloved and well-known psalms of the whole Psalter. They're known as the shepherd psalms. F.B. Meyer, Aaron and I were talking about it last night. F.B. Meyer, in his little book on Psalm 23, said he entitled these psalms this way. He said, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the crook. And Psalm Crook as in, not crook as in thief, <laughs> crook as in shepherd's crook on the, on the end of a staff. And then Psalm 24 is the psalm of the crown. Another famous pastor said these three psalms can be captured with these phrases. The psalm of the great shepherd, the psalm of the good shepherd, and the psalm of the chief shepherd. And he drew that language from our New Testament passages speaking of Jesus as our shepherd. Think about that. For just a moment. We take it for granted, don't we? Jesus Christ, God of God, is our shepherd. He is not ashamed to identify himself with his people. To call himself, because he is such a shepherd. He drew the lame great shepherd, good shepherd, chief shepherd from the New Testament text in Hebrews 13, 20. As the Hebrew writer closes out his letter to the Hebrews, he says that we have, have a great shepherd. And he's great because of what he did in Psalm 22. That's what makes him great. In John 10, Jesus said, I am. He took on the name Yahweh, the very name of God. I am the good shepherd. And then writing to his, the, the Christians dispersed, Across Cappadocia, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, that he is our chief shepherd. He is the king shepherd. Well, these are the psalms that we've come to. These, these most intimate psalms about the most intimate of relationships. A shepherd loving his sheep. Spurgeon said about Psalm 22 this. And it's a long quote, but it bears reading. Listen to this. For one thing... Only Spurgeon could talk like this and get away with it, right? I mean, that's like reading him because he sounds so smart. This is beyond all others. The psalm of the cross. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross. It may have been actually repeated word by word by our Lord when hanging on the tree. It would be, good, be, too, it would be too bold to say that it was so, but even a casual reader may see that it might have been. It begins with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And ends, according to some in the original, with, It is finished. 
for plaintive expressions uprising from the unutterable depths of woe, we may say of this psalm, there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of His dying words, capturing all of His last tears, the memorial of His expiring joys. David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as the star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Before us we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the suffering of the Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. That's what we're going to study this morning. That's where we're going to give ourselves to. One pastor, just so you know, one pastor preached 31 messages from the 31 verses in Psalm 22. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to preach one. So, if it gets along, just say, hey, we're getting 31 sermons in one sermon. What is, the, what is it that we're com- contemplating? What is, if we just wanted to boil it all down, what is the essence of what we're trying to say or what the psalmist was saying to us? What are we trying to understand? This is the way I captured it. This is my thoughts. This is where we come face to face with the nature of our sin against God and the beauty of His grace toward us. In his son. Jesus Christ suffered our death in hell that we might live his life in the eternal kingdom. That's what Psalm 22 is. It's a picture for us of our Savior taking our death, taking our literal hell that we might have his literal life with him for eternity. And I just want to say At the beginning of this sermon. If you don't know this Jesus. If you don't have a relationship. With the one. Who created all things. And has borne all things. On your behalf. I just want to invite you this morning. I want you to know him. He's not just some transcendent God way out there. He's an imminent God. He's here with us. And you can know Him. You can really have a relationship with Him. He desires it. Call out to Him. Even right now, you're sitting right there. You say, we haven't even preached the sermon yet. And you're saying, I don't care. Just call out to Him. It doesn't have to be some flowery, well-worded prayer. It needs to be a humble, broken cry of a worm who needs a Savior. And just simply cry out to Him and say, Save me. Take me. This same Jesus that we're going to study in Psalm 22 said in John 6 that everyone who comes to him on those terms, he will not turn away. And he will raise them up on the last day. And then you can say, with the myriads of those who have been saved through generations, like Job, 
that you will see him with your eyes in his flesh on the earth. Please. Please know him. In Psalm 22, we come face to face with our sin and with our Savior. First of all, we're saved by Christ and His suffering on the cross. That's the first 21 verses. I want to read them. I want you to follow with me and we're going to to explain this in just a moment. Verse 1. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me or they disform their faces at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let God deliver him. Let God rescue him from he, for he delights in God. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bashan was a volcanic region of Israel where wheat grew and, and vegetation was thick. And cows grew to excessive sizes. So when he says these bulls of Bashan. They, the people in, in the psalmist's day. In David's day would have known. What he talked about. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint my heart is like wax it's melted within my breast my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws you lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me a company of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet and this is the most difficult part of the text to translate out of the Hebrew I want you to hear this I believe that this text has it right. Pierced in my hands and my feet. The oldest text, the oldest surviving text, 200 years prior to Christ's coming. And the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Both of them, the oldest ones that we have, agree that this is the right wording. That it's pierced. That it's pierced in my hands and my feet. But, The Masoretic text, a very authoritative text, one that we often follow in our translation because it is so accurate. It was done by the Hebrew people, the rabbis. They pointed, if you didn't know this, this is a side to reading the text. This is explaining this because I don't have time in the sermon to do this. Okay, I'm doing what I don't have time to do. But it's important that you get this. The Masoretic text is a text that was written 
in Christian in the Christian era by the Jews, by their teachers. And what they were doing was going back and putting points or vowels in the Hebrew text. Now, I know that's confusion for English speakers like me and you, but the Hebrew Bible was written without vowels. Okay? It was just consonants. All right? And if you knew how to read it, you could read it. You, you knew what it was. But if you didn't know how to read it, if you were lower educated, if you didn't know pure Hebrew, you couldn't read it very well. It was broken. So what they did, the rabbis, as a teaching tool, went back and pointed the text. When they came to verse 16, they departed from all the tradition that they had prior to Christ, which said the text said, pierced in his hands and his feet. And they translated it, torn by lines. Why would they do that? Why would Hebrew scholars, rabbis, teachers of the Jewish people, why would they change the text after Christ died? For the same reason you reject Christ. Because your hard heart won't let you believe in Him. And as these great Hebrew scholars and Jewish leaders translated their text, they couldn't bear to write verse 16 the way it was written. They couldn't bear to point it that way. They put it as torn by lines. Because they knew if they put pierced in his hands and his feet, they knew what every Jew reading the text would know. There was one great Jew who was killed by the piercing of his hands and his feet. And he claimed to be God. And this text was written a thousand years before he died that way. A hundred years before anybody in the world was known to have been crucified. The writer David wrote in the psalm that the man that would take the sins of the world on himself and die for his people would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Nobody was crucified in the world of David. Nobody. And the Jewish scholars knew if we write pierced in hands and feet, they're going to know Jesus is the Messiah. And so because of that, they tried to conceal it. Just so you know. So you may run into Bibles that say torn by lines. That, but that doesn't even make sense. As I was reading it, it made sense the way I was reading it. That it's pierced. For dogs encompass me and company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So the first 21 verses go back and forth. And I want you to group the verses in your Bible. This is a good help as you're reading it to group it, I think. The verses are 1 through 21. That's the first point. We are saved by the suffering of Christ on the cross. And each of the, section, each of the sections inside, they're smaller strophes, smaller pieces of text. Verses 1 and 2 are a complaint. It's a complaint. And they're going to alternate, okay? The second complaint is covered in verses 6 through 8. The third complaint is covered in verses 12 through 18. These are the complaints of the writer, okay? David writing prophetically about Jesus Christ. I believe this text is a messianic text. It doesn't rightly apply to any human except Christ. He's the only one who did this for you. Nobody in any way comes close to what Jesus suffered you may suffer, you may feel abandoned, but nothing like Jesus felt on the cross. And so the complaints are in verses 1 and 2, 6 through 8, 12 through 18. 
the confidence passages alternate between the complaints. So you have a complaint and then you have a, a statement of confidence in God. This is what's happening. My world's falling apart. God won't answer my prayers. But God is holy. And He answered our Father's prayers. And my heart safely trusts in the one who answered our Father's prayers. You see that? That complaint is followed by confidence. A reassurance that God is holy. God is good. God will hear me. Verses 3 through 5, a confidence text in verses 9 through 11. A confidence text in verse 19 through 21. So the first half of the psalm, 1 through 21, splits to say Jesus suffered on the cross. And we're going to look at the ways that He suffered. First of all, the complaint is that he is forsaken. Christ was forsaken on the cross by God the Father. Verses 1 and 2. We are treading into the holiest of holies when we say that. I can't even comprehend what I just said to you. I believe it, but I don't fully understand it. How can God forsake God? Now that was a real question. No takers? Nobody can answer? I mean, it's beyond our finding out, isn't it? God's bigger than we are. He says things and we just accept them because He says them because He's God. They're true. God the Father forsook God the Son at the cross. Now, I know some people try to explain away. I've been guilty of that because I couldn't understand in the past. It was easier for me to say, well, He didn't really forsake Him. Jesus just thought He was forsaken. But the more I've studied this week, the more convinced I have become that he was forsaken. It wasn't a feeling. It was a reality. He was forsaken. Being God, he was forsaken by God on the cross. What convinces me of that? What convinces me of that is he suffered, I believe, from this text and many others, he suffered the punishment we were due. And what punishment was I due for my sin? What punishment are you due because you are a sinner? You are due being forsaken by God. Not thinking you're forsaken, but really being forsaken in hell. And so in these first two verses, we see him crying out from hell on the cross. Hell saying, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's the cry and the plea, not of rebellion, but of brokenness and of abandonment and of spiritual pain and emotional distraughtness. He's crying out, why have you left me? I haven't done wrong. I haven't sinned. It's not a surprising event. John 10, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. This was not a shock to Jesus when it happened. But it was horrific when it happened. He cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The fourth word from the cross at the beginning of the darkness that enshrouded him at the sixth hour, that's when he cried this out, Matthew tells us. See, all the suffering of Christ counted. But at the point of the darkness, what's happening in that dark moment is something so sacred and so holy and so beyond us understanding that God covers it in darkness. And he says, this is between me and my son. No one else can do what my son is doing right now. No one can help my son. I won't even go 
to his aid. He must suffer the full wrath and weight of sin. If you sit in this pew today and you walk out those doors and you thumb your nose at this Jesus that's blood was shed that you might come, God help you. The hell he suffered, you will suffer. If you deny him and you die in that denial, you will suffer for eternity what he suffered for a moment on the cross. So we have in these first two verses the plea, the cry, the the complaint that I'm forsaken. Jesus is saying this from the cross. Again, we see it in Matthew chapter 27. We see it in Mark. We see it written for us by the gospel writers. But then he follows that up with a statement of confidence. God, I've cried to you in the day. I've cried to you in the night. In Gethsemane. In the trials. In, in, in the torture. In the beatings. In the carrying of the cross, in the nailing of my hands and my feet, I've cried out to you. And now that it's dark, I've cried out to you and you won't answer me. But what does he say? Yet you are holy, or you are the Holy One, enthroned on the praises of Israel. This is not an evil act on God's part. This is a gracious act on God's part. The New Testament tells us that sinful, evil men crucified the Christ, at the preordained will and plan of God the Father. God is not guilty of sin. He is holy. And his lack of answering his son in the moment of his distress is purposeful. And it is not evil. Why? Because it is God himself giving the price for your sin. And my sin is the most gracious and loving act anyone has ever put forward as a gift. It is not cosmic child abuse. It is glorious and it is good. You are holy. You are enthroned. Our fathers trusted you but, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and you rescued them. And they were not put to shame. But then he picks up his complaint again, doesn't he? And he calls himself a worm. A worm. The lowest form of life. A worm. Not just a human, a worm. But I'm a worm. You get the picture of a worm squirming, squiggling in the dirt, in the mire, in the muck. And this is what Jesus says, I'm a worm and I'm scorned and I'm hated. And all that see me mock me. The leaders at the foot of the cross in Matthew are said, the leaders of the Jews are said to mock Jesus continually. The thieves that are crucified next to him mocked him and cried out against him. Take your Bible, hold your place here and take your Bible to Matthew 27. Quickly, and I just want to show you that this text is all over our New Testament account of the cross. It's not just in Psalm, it's here for us in living uh, reality. In Psalm 27, verse 35, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided or scoffed at him, wagging their heads and saying, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in this way. Our text in Psalm 22 says, All the people who see me deride me and mock me and wag their heads at me and say he trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Matthew takes the very words of our text and applies them to Jesus Christ saying to you, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is Psalm 22. He lived it. He died in it. This is our Savior. That's Matthew's point. Christ was forsaken by God. Christ was scorned and mocked by men. And yet he didn't lose confidence, but his confidence builds. Christ became confident in God's faithfulness. Verses 9 through 11. Yet you, who, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. He's saying in perfect confidence, yes, you have forsaken me. Yes, men are mocking me, but you are faithful. From the day I was conceived in Mary's womb, you have loved me, and you have kept me, and you have been with me. His confidence grows. Even though he's in this most tormenting place of suffering, he still believes and trusts in God because he is a perfect Savior. Thirdly, we see in this passage that Christ was tortured to death. He was tortured to death on the cross. It wasn't just dying. It was torture. He describes his enemies as bulls that encompass him and those who open up their mouths like roaring lions to devour him. And I know that it's easy for us, and it's been a failure of Christians throughout history, to blame the Jews for the death of Jesus. But I just want to warn you about that. Don't read this passage and say, those foolish people, how terrible they are. They crucified Jesus. How could they do that? He was perfect. He's God in the flesh. If I had been there, I would have done differently. No. They didn't crucify Jesus alone. You and I crucified Jesus. Now, we physically didn't do it. But we joined them in their rebellion with our sin and with our sinful fallen nature. The great artist Rembrandt, the, the uh, painter from, from uh, the Dutch painter, when he was trying to capture this, he painted a famous picture of Christ on the cross. Some of you may have seen his picture. You can look it up on the internet. He painted it, and at the foot of the cross, he painted a crowd. And at the edge of the painting, you know what he did? He painted himself. He understood that we can't look at the people back then and say, boy, they were evil, they're bad. He said, I did it. I crucified him. And that's what we as Christians today know. Our sin caused this most horrific evil act. There's been nothing like it. No act of terrorism can compare. No murder of anyone we call innocent can compare. This is a purely perfect Son of God, Christ, 
the Son of God. He is God in the flesh and He was murdered at the hands of sinful men. This is the most horrific and evil act of all of history. Yes, more evil than Hitler's Holocaust. Yes, more evil than 9-11. The act of the cross, from human perspective, was the most evil event on the face of the planet that ever has been and ever will be. And we took part in it. But the description here is vivid, isn't it? I mean, you can't hardly bear to read it. He says his energy and his life is being poured out like water and his bones are being pulled out of joint. This we know from crucifixion accounts. When someone was crucified, they were stretched as far as they could be in their arms. They were nailed through the wrist, in the bone of the wrist. There was a perfect place to hang somebody. They hung them. They stretched them out. They, they, bent, they folded their feet and they bent their knees. Just slightly. So this, you're stretched as far as you can stretch. Your feet are crossed and nailed to the cross, to the wood, to the splintery force of the wood. And your knees are slightly bent. Why did they slightly bend the knees? Because if they stretched you out both ways, you didn't last very long. You suffocated and you died quickly. The Romans figured out, wait, that's too easy. When we kill somebody, we want them to suffer. The maximum suffering possible. And so they stretched the man, but then they bent his knees. So at as he wore down and sagged under the weight of the crucifixion, he would gasp for air and pull himself up against those splintery woods, against the metal in his wrist, against the metal in his feet. He would press himself up. He said, the pain and the suffering of this caused my heart to melt like wax. The physical torment that our Savior endured at the hands of sinful men like me and you and because of our sin is incomparable. We can't begin to understand it. This poetic phrase gives us a picture as Spurgeon said but it's only a picture and it's not full. It's not enough. It melted within him and his strength was dried up like an old dried pot that had been broken and thrown out into the desert and all the moisture had left the clay pot. This profuse sweating that must have come because of the pain and the suffering and the heat of the day. The suffering that he endured caused him to dry out and his tongue began to cleave to the inside of his mouth. This is our Savior. And David is saying through a prophetic voice, talking about someone, his, for, uh, his son, in the distant future, he's saying a thousand years before it happened, this is what will happen. On behalf of the sheep, the shepherd will die. And this makes him a great shepherd. You sit here lost. You feel abandoned. You think you're all alone. Come to the one who truly was all alone. Come to the one you think you're suffering. And you may very well be. Come to the one who suffered. In such an immense way you could never fathom. And I could never fathom his suffering. You say, he won't accept me. Oh yes, he will. He longs to accept me. And call you his brother. Come to him. He's a great shepherd. 
The dogs have encompassed me. The evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The clearest testimony in the Old Testament. That one of the clearest testimonies. There are the others in Isaiah. But this one here is very clear that he would be crucified. His nakedness is described in verse 17. You can count all of my bones. And you, people were staring at him. People were publicly crucified naked. And people stood and mocked and stared and derided and laughed as his bones were exposed. And he's writhed under the pain of his death. Not only do they gloat over me, but they divide my garments. That passage in Matthew 27 says that they divided his garments among them and his clothing, they cast lots for it. And that's exactly what they did. They took his undershirt, they cut it and sliced it and broke it up. His outer garment was so uh, beautiful, it was, it was given to him by the Romans. It was a purple robe, it was very valuable, and it had no seam in it, and so they cast lots for it because it's too valuable to cut or to tear. That is in fulfillment of this text. It literally happened. But verse 19 is the beginning of another confidence text. All of this is happening to him, but he doesn't lose confidence in God. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. That confidence is there, even by, prior to being saved from this destruction, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me, he says. Christ trusted his father even when his father didn't appear to answer. He still, he still trusted. So in this first half, we see the suffering of our Savior on the cross, which purchased our salvation. Secondly, in this text, we see we are commanded to preach the gospel to the end of the earth. What I've just described to you is the crucial event in the giving of the gospel. The gospel is impossible unless God gives up His life on our behalf. As sinners, He paid a price we could not pay. 2 Corinthians 5, you can just jot this down, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, the Apostle Paul captures this idea very succinctly. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying? It's very theological, but it's in fulfillment. He's saying, Psalm 22 happened. That's what Paul's saying. What happened? A sinner didn't die for sinners. The perfect, holy one died for sinners. So God took sin and did not make Jesus a sinner. Jesus never was sinful, ever, ever. But he took sin from us, those who would believe those who are his elect, those who are his children. He took our sin like a robe and he clothed Christ in it. And he took Christ's righteousness like a robe and pulled it from him and placed it on us. Let that sink in for just a moment. Christ took your sin. And wore it before his father. Why did you say, why did he suffer this way? Because he he literally came before God clothed in our sin, and that 
cannot be tolerated. And God's wrath was poured out on him. He wasn't a sinner. He took your sin for you before the Father. And the wrath of God was poured out on you in Christ. And you died with him. And you were buried with him. And when we're getting there, when he raised Christ from the dead, the the thing that happens between 21 and 22 is the resurrection. Notice in 21, the, the voice changes. And in verse 22, what does he say? What does he tell them? The psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The very first time we see that expression that Jesus called anybody his brothers was after the resurrection. Clearest, most personal relation to his people. He said to them, to Mary Magdalene, who was at his feet in the garden, she had recognized him, she had seen him resurrected, and what did he say? Go tell my what? Brothers. That I preceded them into the city. Psalm 22, verse 22. Jesus knew what he was doing in the garden when he was resurrected. He was telling them, I am Psalm 22. I lived it. I died it. I was buried with it. And now I've been raised with it. And listen, you have a mission. Go tell your brothers that I'm raised. We are not only, we're not only purchased in Psalm 22, but we have been given a mission in Psalm 22. A mission to go and tell our brothers. Who are our brothers? Those whom God has known since before the foundation of the world. How will we find them? We will preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. So when Mark 16 said, go preach the gospel to every creature. George Whitfield, in explanation of that text, said this. I tell you, If dogs would gather, I would preach them the gospel. Being the comedian George Whitfield was, I'm sure he wanted to say, and they probably would listen better than you do. He was a rather funny man. But he took the text literally. He preached the gospel to every creature he came across. We should be doing the same. We have a mission, folks. At Grace Fellowship, listen, we can revel and we should and we can worship because of what happened in verses 1 through 21. But woe be to us if we clam up inside ourselves and do nothing to help our brothers out there know the same gospel we know. In the coffee shop tomorrow morning, there may be one of your brothers or your sisters sitting there. You don't know. How will you know if you don't tell them? Because God saves them through your telling. His spirit works. How will they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless one is sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel of peace. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People of Grace Fellowship, we have a great shepherd who has died on our behalf. Woe to us if we don't tell our brothers about him. So they might call on him and know him. Listen, it's not enough to say, I'm saved, my children are saved, we're all good, we're going to heaven. We got a compact car, nobody else gets in. No! We need the station wagon of all station wagons. Listen, this place shouldn't be big enough. Let me tell you something. You have brothers in this community who have not believed. Tell them about their Savior. And they will believe. And they will come. 
Jesus Christ said, go tell my brothers. The resurrection has happened. Morning time is over. Three days is enough. I've raised. Psalm 22, 1 through 21 is true. And Psalm 22 through, thir- 22 through 31 is absolutely true. We must be compelled to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. What are the benefits of the gospel as we close down, believe it or not? We, the church, have received these benefits through the atonement. These, I just jotted these down from the text. In 22, we see that we have gained fellowship with God. My brothers, I will tell your name to my brothers. That's Jesus I believe, being prophetically spoken about by the psalmist. My brothers, and they're our brothers, and we have a fellowship in the gospel with God and with our brothers. We've gained that through the atonement. Praise, the ability to praise God, verse 23. Verse 23. We've joined the course of heaven. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. And you all springs of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you all spring of Israel. We have gained the ability to praise God. That wasn't a natural instinct that you had, is it? It's still not for some of you. Honestly, some of you are the frozen chosen. It's okay, I love you. And you think I'm weird because I raise my hands and I cry, get emotional. That's all right, we're all different. But listen, listen, however you worship, whether that's solemn and quiet or expressive and loud, you have that ability because of the cross. You can praise Him because He saved you. That's a gift. Fellowship and praise and testimony. Verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. That's the testimony of Christ to his brothers. And that's our testimony to our brothers, is it not? Listen, I was at the depth of the bottom of the barrel. That was me, a self-righteous, indignant against others, I'm not going to say all the adjectives I could say about myself prior to coming to Christ, but believe me, they're true. And you, you invite me over to your house, I'll tell you how bad I was. And in my nature, I still want to be that bad, but, but thank be to God I'm not that guy anymore. I'm bought with the precious blood of the Savior. I have a testimony. We've been given a great story. Tell it. You say, I don't know how to share the gospel. Well, just start telling them how you got saved. None of you have problems bragging on your wife, your children, especially your grandchildren. I'm not going to look at anybody. I look all around so everybody's equal opportunity offense happening. None of you struggle to tell. None of you say, I can't tell them about my grandparent, my grandkid. I mean, nobody wants to hear about him. He's average. No, your grandkid's the greatest grandkid that ever graced the earth. You tell everybody about him. So why won't you tell about the great shepherd? When did your grandchild ever die for you? When did your grandchild ever enflesh himself and come and take your sin and your hell and take it to the cross and come up from the ground on your behalf? When? So why can't we speak of him? You say, I don't know how to share the gospel. Well, tell them your testimony. You have one. We have fellowship. We have praise. We have a testimony. We have a thank offering to give to God. Verse 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. This psalmist overflows about Christ and says, Look, we have something to give thanks for. We give a thank offering before our Savior. 
We have been given a great commission. This is the second part of that second, second text. We have been given a great commission. Verse 27 and then verse 30 and 31. A great commission. What is our commission? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Verse 30 and 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. That's the words of Jesus at the end of the giving of the atonement. It is finished. I've done all that needs to be done. You don't need to add anything to my work. It is sufficient. It is efficient. It saves all the people of God from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Just tell them about me. And the coming generations will rise up and praise me. You say, I don't preach the gospel because I don't know the gospel. Then know it. I don't preach the gospel because I don't have a story to tell. You have a story to tell. I don't preach the gospel because I'm afraid nobody will believe. People will believe. This text promises it. Just like a thousand years before Christ died on the cross, this psalm said he would die on the cross. This psalm says people in every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every family, on the face of the planet, with some of them will believe if the gospel is preached. So why in 2013, church, Heath helped me out with this stat, uh, this week. Why, Heath, correct me if I'm wrong, why do Wycliffe Bible translators tell us that there are 7,000 languages, there are 2,000 that are in translation right now. The Word of God, they've codified their language, 2,000 languages, and they're putting the text of the New Testament just now in 2013 in those people's languages. And 1,900 people groups, we don't even know their language. We don't even have a code for it. We can't put the Bible in their language because we haven't known them well enough to know their language. It should break our hearts. It should crush us to think, what am I doing to be part of this great mission? I glory in a great Savior, but am, am I on the great commission? Am I doing it to the ends of the earth? You say, well, I'm not supposed to go, preacher. That's fine. Then you can give. Every one of us will eat a meal in excess at some point in this next week. Will we not? We'll eat a meal that we really don't need just because it's time to eat. Take the money that you were going to spend on that meal and set it aside with your children. Say, children, we're going to eat beans and rice tonight. We're going to take the $14 we would have spent on supper and we're going to put it aside and we're going to give it to the mission movement that's happening around the world. We're going to do it, children. We're going to be part of it. We're going to pray for them. Well, $14 isn't very much. Neither was the widow's mite, but Jesus says she gave more than anybody. You say, I'm not supposed to go. Well, then give. Well, I don't have very much to give. Well, then pray. Buy or, better yet, it's free. Go on the internet and download uh, um, the Joshua Project. Just put it on, it's an app now. It can go on your phone. Put it on your phone. Put it on your iMac. Put it on your, your whatever, your tablet technology, your Windows-based program, whatever. Just put it on there. And every day it'll give you a people group to pray for. These people don't know Jesus because they've never heard. They don't even have a gospel in their language, coded in their language. You can pray for them every day, a different people group, or every week, one people group, or every month, just one people group, or every year, just one people group. Everybody is on this mission that is in 
the gospel, every one of us. And Grace Fellowship, we want to be on this mission. And we are in so many ways. We are. We are telling people. Many of you are sharing the gospel faithfully. Many of you are telling your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, those you work out with, those you drink coffee with. We are supporting missions. We can do more. But we are supporting missions. I'm thankful for that. I'm hopeful that we will take a people group and a, and, a, and a translation project and adopt it and just start giving to it every year as a people. I'm hopeful of those kind of things. We want to be a part of this great mission for our great Savior because He has loved us more than we can fathom. And He has suffered for our victory. And He has empowered our mission with His suffering. And what's the end? Where's it all going? Just like this sermon. Where is the end? Right here. We are members of an eternal kingdom. Listen, I know things go against us in this world. As believers, we shouldn't be shocked by that. Things don't go our way. Things are, we're downtrodden often. We're persecuted often. We're, we're, we're despised often. The Christian church is laughed and mocked at. But listen to me. Only the people of this king, this savior, can say these words. For kingship, verse 28, belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. The rich and the poor alike come to this king, even the one who could not keep himself alive. That's the end, the kingdom. We are part of a great kingdom that is eternal and it never, that means it never ends, children. And so, We see in the first half the suffering of our Savior. And we see in the second half that that suffering has not only bought us a victory, but it's bought us a mission. And we should be on the mission because the kingdom that we are part of is eternal. We are the victors. We are the winners. Even in our persecution and suffering, we have a God who has made us victorious. And so I'm calling you one last time. Unsaved person, person who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, you don't know him, know him. Christian who knows him, get in the game. Be a part of the mission. Start now. Start now. Hey, if you want to practice, I know it's weird. We're going to eat a meal. I kept you a little long. It's okay. We're going to feed you for free. Okay? Go right across the parking lot, sit down around the tables and eat. And while you're eating, just for kicks, just for practice, ask the person next to you, hey, do you have a story about how you came to Christ? And then just listen. What if we just used our fellowship time to practice telling somebody our story? How we came to Jesus. How how do you know him? And then we'll gain the boldness by the grace of God to do it tomorrow at work or at the coffee shop or wherever we find ourselves with the person working out next to us in the gym. Hey, do you know Jesus? I know Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. I pray that we will become a people like those those. Those grandparents nobody can stand that talk about Jesus so much that people just say, he must be real. Right? That's what I want for myself, for you, because we have a great shepherd who has paid a great price and we have entered a great salvation with a great mission in a great kingdom. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in your word.